0: You open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. While you're turning there, I do once again want to thank uh, Aaron for uh, taking the lead as we've been praying for the persecuted church uh, throughout this month. Uh, it's uh, really very important that we do so. Uh, there's a book that I started reading uh, a week ago, um, it's about a seminary. Uh, somewhere up in North Africa, I can't remember the name of the country, but nonetheless, as a Bible college actually. When the people graduate, um, part of the graduation ceremony is as a group, they take an oath. And the oath basically uh, is one states that they are fully aware uh, that there's a good chance that they will be imprisoned, uh, tortured, uh, perhaps um, killed for being believers. And the oath is that they'll be loyal to Christ regardless of what will happen. So as I'm reading through the book, the one guy uh, that's being interviewed says that he's a, uh, one of those who's kind of the founding members of this Bible college, and he'd been thinking a lot about the persecution and, and uh, what had been going on in this country, and he said that he had figured out that the greatest threat to the church, that the number one thing that causes the church to fall silent, that causes individual believers to fall silent, is no persecution and he was talking about uh, many American Christians that he had talked to, and just in doing interviews with them, had discovered that our ease of life, which is not a sin, it's where we live, but that our ease of life and the freedom that we have of religion has been the most successful thing in causing to silence us about our witness for the Lord. And uh, anyway, it was just very interesting uh, to, uh, to read that, and then also to hear these individuals today on the film clip, that they had uh, the Chinese believers there who had been isolated were, didn't know if the gospel had been claimed in other countries, and they wanted to know if it, was, if, if it had taken place yet or not. And that's just amazing, uh, because we often think of all the churches in the world being like us. You know, they may dress different, but we kind of all know the same things, and we don't. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, but again, I want to thank Aaron for doing that for us. That was uh, I believe, very profitable. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, your love, and your kindness. We thank you, Father, again for the gospel of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel to free us from the curse of sin. We thank you, Father, for how the gospel does, in every way, revolutionize our life, revolutionize the way that we think, the way that we experience life, the way that we understand life. Our motives, our drives, everything is affected by the gospel, and all of it is affected in a very good way. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we find ourselves resistant to the work of the Spirit in our lives. I pray, Father, as we continue our study here in the book of Ecclesiastes, that, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds and grant us understanding of your word. Help us, Father, to grasp the sense of what Solomon has said, what he has experienced, the questions and the issues he has raised. Help us, Father, to be able to identify how a great deal of what he says is deeply enmeshed in the culture that we live in. We pray, Lord, that with this understanding, that it help us to be able to better communicate the gospel of Christ to a needy world. And so we ask, Lord, that you would feed our souls from your word, and we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He writes, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Again, remember that Solomon his writing is uh, writing of what he has experienced in life, what he thinks and what he feels about it. He's been observing, again, not only his own life, but others as well. He has seen how life is lived, how life goes. He sees that there's a rhythm to life and that man does not and cannot control what happens uh, and what happens when. When he sees all this, he instinctively believes and knows that there must be meaning in life. There is meaning in life. But again, but when he pursues something or a line of thinking to discover meaning, it's like grasping smoke. Again, looking at verses 10 and 11, let me read to you from the Amplified. Again, because we want to amplify what's being said. And he says, I have seen the painful labor and exertion and miserable business which God has given to the sons of men with which to exercise and busy themselves. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also planted eternity in men's hearts and minds, a divinely implanted sense of a purpose working through the ages, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy, yet, so that men cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I want to kind of go through some background material this morning. Background not necessarily to the historical events of what Solomon was experiencing, but really more philosophically, to help us to understand uh, in a much deeper way what he's talking about. The goal is is that after we kind of go through all of this, you know, when we read back through this, a lot of synapses will begin to fire off because we'll, we'll see more connections. Uh, too often what happens when I, when I preach, when I teach, just so you know, basically, I'm just giving you the first part of a three-hour sermon. I know that you don't want to sit here for three hours, so I have to break it up. Uh, Part of the reason for that is when you teach in the jail every day, it's very similar to what John Calvin did back in Geneva. He'd preach every day. And so when you preach every day, you can... You can develop thoughts for that sermon, for that moment, but you can also can develop other themes that you'll, that you'll jump back into the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next di- day and develop all of those. And I kind of have a habit of doing that, um, but you have a week off in between. Uh, and so sometimes when you hear a, a sermon, you, if you listen to it, you need to go back to hear the first one, or you're not going to be able to make all the connections. So here's what I want to talk about. When he says here that he has placed in man what we call eternity in their hearts, that's another way of, of saying what is what we're most familiar with, which is in Romans one, that all men know that God exists. That's an emphatic statement from Scripture. As Christians, we take the Bible, at least we should, take the Bible at face value, and we believe what the Bible says. About all things, including what it says about man, what it says about mankind, what it tells us about our history, what it says about how we think philosophically. So I want to uh, explain some of that, just kind of so we can make some connections. Because he tells us also clearly that man not only knows that God exists, but he suppresses that knowledge. And we sometimes think that what that means is, is that people don't want to hear about the gospel. or They don't want to hear about Jesus Christ or his death, or they somehow want to deny that. And that's part of it, but it's, it's much bigger than that. And I'll give you an example. Uh, for most of us, maybe all of us, when we went to school, we were all taught the same things about how man, or mankind, developed. That tens of thousands of years ago, man basically grunted, because language hadn't been developed. Man wanted to communicate, but he grunted. Uh, and uh, he went out, and he would kill things, and basically he ate everything raw because there was a point in time when he had to invent fire. And so what we have is an approach to the development of man that's evolutionary. Now, the reason why individuals were thinking this way is because it's natural for those who are born in darkness, which is all people, to automatically think about the world and history about everything outside of or apart from what the scripture says or even uh, nowadays with a desire to eliminate what the scripture says they don't want the bible affecting anything that we think about as individuals some do that very overtly they're actually thinking they want to get rid of this there's others that's just what they do naturally they're not thinking well I want to deny what's in the bible but that's exactly what they're doing so we are taught this view of man as if it's the truth but it's actually a theory that's based on a theory. There's no evidence that man lived for thousands of years without fire. There's no evidence that man only grunted in the beginning and then somehow later developed language. We believe what the Bible says historically, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We look at that and we have an understanding about mankind that's very different from how the world looks at it. What we understand is, from the very beginning, man what? Spoke. He was very intelligent. One of the reasons for the statement in Genesis that Adam named the animals is, he's a pretty smart guy. I don't think I could have named all the animals. I would have run out after Duke and Spot. <laughs> That'd be about it. So it's an amazing thing. Also, what we see, which we can sometimes miss, is we know... And we can take it for granted. Adam was a gardener. He wasn't trying to exist in a cave and just kill things to eat. He he, he lived in a a garden that was being cultivated that he managed. Now we know what happened. We know there's the curse of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. They were kicked out of the garden. But what did their sons do? Well, the one son was a farmer and the other was a shepherd. So the whole idea of, you know, men walking around, they're their knuckles are dragging on the ground and you know they see a woman and they smack her and they grab her by the hair and pull her back to the cave and grunt, I'm married, and all that's not that's not how it was. As sin progressed, the man's condition went downhill. And those things began to happen. I don't know if I mean men have always grunted. Um, you can ask a lot of women, they know that their husbands grunt, uh, but as as far as being the main means of communication. Uh, that's not what took place. We actually went downhill to begin to do that. So the thing is, is that too many of us, really, without thinking about it, our, our natural understanding of man and how man has come to be where he is, is actually against what Scripture says. That's why we have to be so diligent in teaching our children both what the world says and how it's contrary to the Bible. So that they don't think that what we have in Genesis is just fairy tale, because that is the assumption of a lot of people. I, what I got in school was man lived in caves and he killed things and finally he somehow he created fire, uh, probably by accident. But when he did that, it was a great thing. He began to cook his meat and you know all these types of things. And there have always been people who've lived in caves. In fact, if you're building a house, a cave is a good place to live till the house is done. But the idea is, is that we then, without thinking about it begin to view Genesis as being just some kind of a nice story, and we never quite try to make the connection between what is going on there historically and what the world says happened with man. But along the way as well, the way we understand religion is also based on the same kind of thing. The idea that you will hear in universities, uh, the idea that people just kind of assumed uh, in our culture, because it's the one that we're the most familiar with, is that in the beginning... Man was very superstitious, which, by the way, man wasn't superstitious in the beginning, man became superstitious. But man was superstitious in the beginning, and he believed in all kinds of gods. You know, he didn't understand what was going on in the heavens, you know, the sky. He didn't understand what was going on in nature, and so he began to attribute gods to all these things. Beings that were, you know, beyond him. And so man kind of developed these various religions and, and rituals and that kind of thing. And, and then as man became more civilized, he became more, you know, his religion became more civilized. In fact, they taught that when when uh, men would rise up in the leadership, you know, they then began to propagate this idea that not only are there several gods, but my God is a little higher than all the rest of them, and maybe the people could worship their own family gods and his god as well. And then later on, what took place after that, was man, as he continued to to become much more civilized around the world, man then developed the idea of monotheism, that there's only one god, that there is only one god, only one real god, and this god is above all. And then, of course, the way that the theory goes is that in time, as we continue to develop we come to realize there is no God. We don't need the concept of God any longer. And so as a result, we, we live in a country now, a culture now that continues to try to find ways to eliminate references to religion. In particular, it's Christianity, but they will try to eliminate that. They try to marginalize what what Christians believe, what we, you know, the morals that we, that we are convinced are true and that there's only one way, and, and they want to, uh, mankind has basically said that when it comes to all religion, it's just, it's, you have myth and opinion, and, you know, it's not really real. Whatever floats your boat, it's good for you. If it helps you, wonderful. But this man's religion helps him, you have no right to say what he believes. And all those things that are going on. Uh, that's what's taking place. Now, all that is actually based, that idea of how religion has evolved, all that is based uh, on uh, some books that were written back in the 1800s. This man developed this theory of how religion evolved. Through time, though, uh, this one man, one of his best students, kept coming across information from ancient cultures, you know, different ones, where there was this belief that there was one supreme God. They, they may still have believed in a bunch of what we call minor gods, but, but you know, there was a mixture of error in there. But there was a belief, going way, as, as they continued to go way back, that there was a god that was the sky god or what have you. And so because he kept seeing this concept, that kept blowing holes in the theory that this guy developed about how these religions evolved. Till in the end, this guy had 12 volumes of historical information about ancient peoples and how they developed re- uh, uh, religiously and showed that this belief in a mono-theistic type, monotheistic type thinking had always been around. However, like it happens often today, society just ignored it. The academics just ignored it. They didn't want to go there because that was too close to coinciding with what the scripture says. Now, the reason why I say all that is because there is evidence that man, according to what the Bible says, has always known that there is a God that exists. And even if man outwardly denies that there is a God that truly does exist, the fact that God has created us the way he has, this writer talks about certain longings that we have. And so as as our culture tries to make us more and more secular, they want to restate what some of our longings are, then come up with their own answers to, again, eliminate religion. That's that's the goal. So uh, that's why for many, many decades, there was the big push in self-esteem. The idea that, well, the reason why, because the basic premise of that is that man is basically good. But what does the Bible say? Man's born evil. Again, we're not all serial killers. But in the end, we all have a propensity to do wrong. And we have to learn to do right. And so all men are evil. Well, But this other premise, which is anti-Christian, anti-Bible, the premise was that we're all basically good. And so we need to figure out why it is we do bad things. Because it doesn't make sense why good people would do bad things. And so the theory came along. And there's been lots of theories and many theories have coincided. But this one was that, well, because people just don't feel good about themselves. Because they don't feel good about themselves, that's frustrating. It causes them to become angry, maybe jealous. All these types of things they kind of throw in the mix. And so that's why they may do poorly in school, why they beat people up, why they commit murders. In fact, there's been, there were several statements that said that the number one cause of crime was low self-esteem. Now, you don't hear that too much anymore. That whole thing's been debunked by even secular psychologists. They just don't even, that's just ridiculous. Uh, I I did an informal survey once. I had a large Bible study in the jail, 130 inmates. I told them that the main reason why, that I'd read that the main reason why people committed crime was because of low self-esteem. And I said I disagree with that. And I said, let me tell you my theory. And I told them my theory was, is the main reason it was all men. I said, the main reason you men committed your crimes is because you are convinced that the world revolves around you. And whatever you want, you just need to go take it, regardless of the situation. You're the, you make your own rules for yourself. I kind of went on for a while. I said, so in the end, what it is, is the main cause of crime is that you're absolutely in love with yourself. I said, how many of you agree with that? Just so you know, 120 men put their hands up. That was the reason. The other ten were lying. <laughs> That's what I told them anyway. Nobody argued. But the key is, is that we, we keep falling into this trap where we do not really embrace what the Bible says. That's why as we read through the scripture, again, it's not just trying to reduce the Bible to the, just the, the fewest points possible where we just come up with just, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for my sin and I'm waiting for him to come again. No, the Bible speaks on everything that there is and really helps us to understand what's going on inside of us, what's happening. And so that's what Solomon wants to get at because, remember, he keeps bringing up that he, he looks at all these things and man wants, he has a strong desire to understand why he does what he does, but he also wants to know and be assured that what he does matters. We want to, we want to know that our life actually matters. One of the reasons why I think that we need to always take the warning about entertainment, I'm not not against entertainment, entertainment can be great, Um, you know, we we like to sit and watch uh, people sing and that's enjoyable, Uh, sometimes we we like to watch uh, the the greatest sport on the planet and watch football. Others want to watch other inferior things. That's fine. But the point is, is that we, you know, we want to be distracted for a while, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, because of you know, the development of all these various electronic devices, we are continuously distracted. And the great danger with that is this. When man is feel, f- feeling unfulfilled, when man is feeling a sense of lostness or despair, When man begins to feel that, gosh, these things don't really seem to matter, and they don't like that, all of these devices create an opportunity for us to not to think. We don't have to think. Just go to your TV. 200 stations to choose from. If there's not that, 5,000 or 50,000 movie titles, and if it's not that, you know, play this video game. And if it's not that, go check out your Facebook or whatever it is, you know. And and again, there's nothing wrong with those things, many of them, by themselves. But when it begins to occupy a great deal of our time and puts us in a position where we don't think about these things. In fact, we live in a very emotional age, yet we think very little about our feelings. I think that, that both those things are happening at the same time. That's why we want to... We, you know, we want to be the guy or the, or the girl. I want to be the one that kind of brings out the way we feel about life. And so when life seems empty and meaningless, man, we need to hone in on that. You know, kind of get that powerful flashlight and just beam it right on there when someone begins to even hint at those kinds of things. Or when you find individuals who just are constantly, in fact, I do believe uh, that individuals who are constantly on their phone. Either if they're a believer, they have a very weak relationship with the Lord. It's just a fact of life. Or they may not know Christ. Because why would that? I know that it can be addicting in a way. You know, I know there's a release of dopamine and all this. And all that's true. There's a release of all those things. But it's not addicted in the sense that you can't help yourself. We don't want to. Because you like it. And so Solomon, he doesn't have to be in our day and age so we can say, well, you know he understands the issues. What we want to say is, well, he doesn't really know what it's like for us, so we can disregard what he's saying. And we cannot disregard what he says to support this negative answer that that Solomon is getting at here. Uh, in it's, it's the it's the negative answer to the question that we looked at briefly last week in verse nine, which is, "What does it really matter?" Uh, when all these things, you know, we see the rhythm of life. You know, there's a time to kill, time to plant, time to embrace, time not to embrace, all those things we looked at last week. Solomon refers to three observations that he had uh, drawn from his reflection on all human activity. Uh, And they're represented in the opposites. So this activity is suggested by the the word burden. You know, when we first read through uh, this passage, um, depending on what translation you have, it may have the word task, um, it may have... Uh, the word uh, uh, burden, that God has given this, this burden to man, uh, something to be busy with, uh, that, that word is what you have there in your notes, which is, uh, that's not the spelling of it, that's how you would say it, in yon is how you would say it. So the word in yon, which is, uh, can be translated burden or task, uh, it refers to a job to be performed, a responsibility to be met, a need to be satisfied, to examine all of life and to understand it. So let me just stop there. So the main definition of the word is it refers to a job that needs to be performed. So God has given something to all of mankind. It goes back to what God has really, I guess you could say it this way, has implanted in us. This is where our mind goes naturally when we sit and think about life. It's a responsibility to be met and a need to be satisfied. So it's all of those things. That's why uh, oftentimes the reason why we have such a, a, a large number of organizations that people want to become a part of, and it's not a bad thing, but people want to become a part of an organization that's doing something because we want to be attached to something that's bigger than ourselves. It gives to us a sense uh, of meaning, maybe even a sense of importance. We want to be connected to that. So we want to be connected to, to you know, helping fund uh, those who are looking for this, uh, um, the answer to cancer. We want to be a part of those who are trying to eliminate hunger worldwide. We'll be a part of those who are going around the world digging wells, you know, because you can actually do that. You can see what you're doing. So we, we like even that even more. I, you know, I've been a part of, you know, such, so many trips and we have dug 3,000 wells so people can have fresh water. So we want to be attached to things that are bigger than us. Uh, and that's why sometimes people will defend whatever they're a part of, even when it be, maybe it turns out that that really wasn't a good thing. You know, because we can't we can't handle that. So what happens is is that man still has this need inside of him where you know he he wants that to be met. So this busyness that God has given us, this burden is uh, is this thing to be satisfied. So the way that the way that works is we want to examine all of life. We want to understand it. Whether we are examining life in in a very big way. Uh, maybe in an exhaustive way, or just in our own environment, in our own family. We still do this in the, to some degree, looking for answers. So we want to examine life, we want to understand it. Uh, this is done by both good and evil persons. It talks about the way we look at the past, the way we understand the present, and the way we look at the future. It indicates the effort that is put forth, as well as the task itself. And some spend more time thinking about this than others. So the three things that I want to get into is, number one, Solomon observed... That God has made everything beautiful. A, a better word may be appropriate. That God has made everything. There's, there's an appropriate time for everything. There's a proper time for everything. So God, in his providential plans and control, has an appropriate time for every activity. That's what he's just gone through. So man understands that about life. They're, you know, Just like uh, man knows that even though there's a time to laugh, man doesn't laugh at the funeral. And we we understand those things. And so there's an appropriateness to various things in life. Secondly, Solomon observed that God has put, and this is what I've been talking about, eternity in the hearts of men. People have a longing or a desire to know the extratemporal significance of themselves. In other words, it's something that is outside of time. It's in another dimension. They're looking for that which explains reality. Metaphysics gets into all of that. They want to find what is the essence of life. What is it that makes all these things work together? What is it? There must be something beyond the here and now that explains the here and now. There must be something that explains my significance, if I have any, and I really hope I have some. We want to be significant. It doesn't mean that you want to be the king of the world, but we do want our lives to matter. Somehow we want our lives to matter. And when individuals lose that sense, some people may call it, they've lost a sense of hope. Losing a sense of hope is not always you were hoping to have a better life or to be rich. It's not that. It's, It's a sense of hope is that your life matters. And when you lose that, when that's gone, then nothing matters, including yourself, including your health. When you lose when you don't have relationships, meaningful relationships with people, you tend to isolate yourself, and you tend to be isolated. We've seen that. Go downtown any time of the day. In the parks, you see men and women sitting by themselves with a drink in a paper bag, so we don't know what it is, by themselves. Every now and then there would be a couple of them congregated, but normally they're by themselves. And we all know the great sadness of that. Because we, we know that at some point they did have parents. I don't know what happened, but at some point they had parents. At some point they had friends. S- something had to happen. They, they burned the bridges somewhere. We just can't say, well, bad things happened to them. Bad things happened to everybody. Why are they there? And then, of course, the saddest is they may lay down and die and nobody even knows. In some of our larger cities, there are large numbers of unidentified or unclaimed bodies, people who've died, and they've, the, the uh, government has tried to find if they have any family, and they don't. You, you have to do things to get to that point. We don't want to be there, and we would be filled with great sadness and sorrow if we learned that someone in our family was living like that. It causes a lot of grief. It's difficult to understand. And so when the individual loses hope, then there's no desire to really live. They have no desire to live life well. It doesn't mean they necessarily want to die. Most individuals don't really want to die. Some do, but they don't really want to die in the sense of ceasing to exist. But they've, t- they've stopped trying. they stopped trying. And so again, Solomon has noticed that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. We have this longing and desire. When that's dashed, that's why their whole life is the way that it is. The third thing is Solomon added that people cannot know the works of God. So when man tries to figure this out, from the beginning to the end, they cannot know the sovereign and eternal plan of God on their own. They can't. So human labor is without profit. Because people are ignorant of God's plan. They're ignorant of what God desires to do. The basis by which one would evaluate the appropriateness and eternal significance of all activities is based on knowing who God is and understanding God and his plan. So because of this ignorance, there's an uncertainty about the value of one's labor. So the author means to say that God has not only assigned to each individually his appointed place in history. That's important. Each of us, God has placed at this moment in time, doing the things that we do at this moment in time for specific reasons. He expects us to fulfill the responsibilities he's given to us. So God has appointed you to be a father now. He has appointed your children to be born to you now. Your life is significant in their lives because that's what God says. It is also significant to God. It's important to Him. We, we fulfill our responsibilities as we serve Him. So really what happens is as you seek to be the best dad you can be, you're doing that, or you should be, to the honor of God. And of course, if you're seeking to do the honor of God, you're going to do it in a particular way, even though be, some of the circumstances would be a little different. We're going to do it in a particular way, seeking advice from the Word of God, also, we have our own ideas. Obviously, We do want to make sure they're not contrary to Scripture. And so our lives are significant to that person. Our lives are significant to our husband, to our wife, to our circle of friends. We want to have that sense that at least there we have that. And so part of that is understanding, and this is where I think some of the self-esteem people were trying to go, but you can't get there without God. And that is, you and I really are important. We're not the most important. Okay, We're not king of the world. It's not that people should bow down to us and kiss our feet, but we are important. But we're only important because God has said that. We're created in his his image. It's not because we have put ourselves in a position of importance. In fact, we, most Christians would say that all human life has what? Value. What's that based on? Once again, that's based on what the scripture says. Because all human beings, even those who are born with defects, are all made in the image of God if you follow the evolutionary theories and you're a strict evolutionist, which if you're you're not going to believe in God, there's no other theory that's out there, then how do you assign significance to each individual? You don't. That's one of the foundational uh, uh, aspects of those who promote abortion. Life doesn't have significance yet. It will have significance one day. Those who uh, lobby for those who... You know, you, A woman finds out that her, her baby is going to be have some kind of, of retardation, some kind of defect. Well, you need to eliminate that child because someone has decided that that's no quality of life, that somehow you're now cruel to bring that child into the world because they don't associate any value to that life. But that life has value to mom and dad. At least it should. So all of those things that we know when we take the Bible for granted, and don't think about it as we ought to, we can very easily be led astray, and we can see that in our society. So when we tell our children that they are special, you don't want to push that to where they begin to think everybody else should worship them, But we do want them to know that they are important to us, they are important to God, that we love them for who they are, not for what they do, that God loves us for who we are, and that's why he does good things for us. All that's important. All of that is in and behind what Solomon is saying. So we have an appointed place in history. So the consciousness of man, being conscious of this fact, affects my condition God has also established in a man the impulse that leads him beyond that which is temporary to tor- towards that which is eternal. It lies in our very nature to not be content with the temporary. That's why no matter how rich someone comes, becomes, no matter how many things they can buy, if that's where they're putting all their marbles, it never satisfies. Never. You can read biography after biography after biography of filthy rich people and almost always that is there somewhere. That didn't really, I mean, it, it can buy, it, now money can buy you happiness, at least for a week or two, but it not not on the long scale, it doesn't. It just doesn't do that. And so we become dissatisfied with the temporary. Being the greatest at whatever you are, whether it's a doctor or an athlete or whatever, it's not enough. That's why normally when, a, you'll notice if you read biographies of dictators, which can be very... A downer, because they're just nasty people. But they don't always begin that way. Sometimes they actually begin with a, with a very, what we would call relatively a very good heart. But as they, in a sense, become drunk on power, so to speak, it's not enough that they have authority. It's never enough for a dictator to have absolute authority over everything. What they really want, after a while, is what? They want to be worshipped. That's why so many of them go crazy killing people because who has the power of life and death? Only God. And so to be able to dictate who dies and who lives is, in a sense, very intoxicating. We may not think that it is, but it is for them. And so there's a desire to be worshipped, but that's frustrating because they know that the only way they can get everyone to worship them is through what? Terror and fear. I Make people afraid so now I can have everybody bow to me, but because I know they're being forced, it's unsatisfying. And now I'm even more angry than I was before. I want them to, you know, in fact, there's been a few dictators through the years that said, I want you to bow before me because you love me. We love you. As we cower before them. And so it just, it never ends. But that comes because of what God has given us, but it's been corrupted by sin and the curse of sin. Man wants to break through the limits of that which is temporary. He wants to escape from the bondage that is the earth, so to speak. He wants to get rid of or escape the disquietude, if you want to use that word, within which he is held amid the ceaseless changes of time to console himself by directing his thoughts to eternity. It is not enough for man to know that everything has happened in its divinely ordained time. This is actually a four-hour sermon, so I'm stopping now. That was only three, but it's four. But when man understands what Solomon has observed, that there is an appropriate time for all of these things, to know that isn't enough. It doesn't satisfy. So that's why, again, number one, we want to make sure that as believers, that we spend time every week. Yes, we need to read the Word of God, absolutely. And pray and worship with believers. We also need to spend time thinking about life, about our life and about life. We want to develop in our children a way to think about themselves, to evaluate what they do and why they do it. Help them to learn to think, not just about what they're doing now, but about the future. And I don't mean necessarily they need to save for retirement. They can do that, but I'm talking about the way we treat people, the way we advance, all those things. We need need to teach them to do that. We must. What we also must do is we need to be those individuals who become kind of an irritant to others, to those who don't think this way. We need to be an irritant to them, especially the non-believers, because as long as they are entertained, they see and will experience no need for the gospel of Christ. Those who always go to the party and are living it up are unaware of anything going on in their life that's bad. But when the party's over, and they have to go home alone, and sit in darkness, their thoughts drive them nuts. And We want to be the irritant that helps to do that a little sooner. We want to do it nicely, we want to do it firmly, we want to do it gently, but we want to do that. Because you and I know what's in man based on what the scripture says. I know that even if he's never admitted it, when I'm talking to someone, that at some point he has, and maybe he's dismissed it, thought about his life and meaning, and whether his life has meaning or not, whether his life even matters. I need to try to figure out where he's at. Is he pretty close to just giving up? You know, because it can sound that way, because one of the most commonly used words is, whatever. That's our philosophy of life. You know, so when someone says, no, you need to do this, you know, whatever, man. Oh, I guess it depicts laziness and all the rest, but maybe there's something else going on there. Maybe the, de- the flame is getting dim. And so we need to be that irritant. If you have never considered Christ, remember this, that when we say that Christ is the answer, he really is. He is the one that gives to us, uh, I guess you would say, the, the, the big picture to help us to understand all things. Because he's the creator of all things. And, and the first thing he deals with in our life is, as people is he deals with that which is broken, and that's the soul. So that we then become rightly related to God, so we then can hear him correctly, so we can hear him in faith. Where he gives us a spirit so we, can, so we can understand how to live, so we can be infused with his love, that we can relate to people properly. And so that will revolutionize our whole life so if if you find yourself again like Solomon and and you've had these questions and you you don't really have any answers, not really in fact you're afraid to think of these things then I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John talk to someone here, myself or someone, about life, about the Gospel and we'll show you the way to Christ. And for those of us who are believers, it is important that we stop just existing we need to live. We need to embrace life. The difficult as well as the wonderful. Because we know who we have in Christ. We will never be those who have no hope. Because we have hope. We're able to live in hope because of Christ. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and kindness and love. We thank you, Father, again for just the, uh, the wonderfulness of life that you've given to us. And we pray, Father, you would give us understanding about why and where things have gone wrong for us as individuals, for others, as well as mankind as a whole. Help us, Father, to see that the word comments and corrects and informs us on every issue that we experience in life. Help us, Father, to have a strong desire to want to understand truth. I pray, Father, for believers that, Lord, you would help us to not only read the Bible with a renewed quest for truth, but Lord, that we would become dissatisfied with maybe the lacklusterness of our own lives and we would seek to live in light of truth. And then, Father, we pray also you help us to be an irritant to others. Maybe a happy, content irritant, but one nonetheless. That Father, we may somehow rouse maybe many people that we love out of their sleep and laziness. We know, Lord, we can't make anyone believe. We can't make anyone even care. Father, we ask that you would use our witness, use our words, and use our lives to peck away at the sandy foundation that so many others build their lives on. So that, Lord, that when the storms come, whether they're big or small, they will begin to have a great sense that their life, the way that it is now, is empty and they have no foundation to stand on. And we pray, Lord, that we will be there to help them through that time and to do so by sharing with them the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your great love for us and your incredible patience. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.